Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to another episode of New Books in Religion. I'm your host, Christian Peterson. Each program, we choose a new book that's especially interesting, and we chat with the author of that book. Today, we're talking to David Gordon White, Professor of Comparative Religion at the University of California, Santa Barbara, about his new book, Sinister Yogis. The classical South Asian text, the Mahabharata, reports, Yogis who are without restraints and endowed with the power of yoga are so many masters who enter into the bodies of the Prajapatis, the sages, the gods, and the great beings. Finding this passage was one of the inspirational moments that motivated White to pursue an investigation into the development of yogic practices, wondering, if these be yogis, then what is yoga? White tackled the history of yoga by focusing on those individuals who were called yogis in his latest book, Sinister Yogis. This approach challenges many of the preconceived Western notions of what yoga is. There is little meditation, breathing, exercise, impossible contortionism, etc. that is often associated with the practice. Further, it offers an alternative reading of histories of the philosophical development of yogic teachings. We are presented with possession, shape-shifting, and the creation of multiple bodies, among other things. Overall, yogis were defined as such when they entered into or took over the bodies of others. White examines this history in a variety of contexts and across the vast expanse of history. Altogether, White's research is rich and detailed but thoroughly readable, as he is a skilled storyteller. One will discover this with delight already on the first pages, which recount White's encounters with yogis, or maybe just the same yogi, from the mountains of Kathmandu to the parking lots of Los Angeles' Trader Joe's. A thoroughly enjoyable book, which I highly recommend. Here's the interview. Hi, I'm here with David Gordon White, uh, professor of religious studies at uh, UC Santa Barbara. We're talking about his new book, Sinister Yogis. Um, thanks for talking with us, David. How are you today? Um, great, thanks. My pleasure. So, um, the the before we get into the the content of the book, maybe you could uh, let us know a little bit about yourself. Um, you know, the book, you're a great storyteller in the book, and uh, I can see that it's the content is intricately tied to your life. So maybe you could just tell us about how you got interested in religion, how you got interested in yoga. Sure. Well, in part, like many of my generation, I'm a child of the 60s, 70s. So um, in my particular case, I had a high school teacher when I was in 12th grade who, instead of teaching us world geography, showed us slides from her trips to India and basically focused on India and talked about it with great emotion. And that sort of stayed in my mind. It's around the same time, or actually a few years prior to that, the Beatles came back from India with the beads and the narrow jackets and the rest. So all that was, you know, jabsing around in my mind. And when uh, my freshman year of college, I realized I really couldn't do the math and the physics to be a marine biologist. I, I thought again of Indian thought and philosophy. And so I changed my major in my sophomore year and 
I was fortunate. This was at the University of Wisconsin Madison. Um, I was fortunate to have a, an advisor, David Knipe, uh, who was a great scholar of the Veda, but also Hinduism in general. And he he guided me. He told me, well, I should do a study abroad year, and I should go to University of Chicago for grad school. And one of the things he didn't tell me to do, but that he himself had done, was um, live in Europe for a while. And that's what I did. I I went to India in my senior year, my college year abroad, and wrote an undergraduate thesis on the god Bhairava, who comes up in all my books. And um, after that, I lived in Paris for four years. It wasn't a plan to stay that long, but I did, uh, and was a student at the Ecole Pratique des Hautes Etudes, where I had two of the greatest French scholars of um, Indian religion, um, Indology, Charles Malamud, the Vedic specialist, and Madeleine Biardot, uh, Mahabharata and Indian philosophy. And from there, I went to University of Chicago for grad school, as David Knipe had um, urged me to do. And um, by then, I was certainly very interested in South Asian religion. Chicago broadened my scope to comparative religion in general, and I had Wendy Doniger O'Flaherty as my advisor, but also Mircea Eliadu was still there, and that's a name probably some of your listeners know. He's in a sense, the founder of the field of history of religions, and uh, he was very old by the time I was there, but I was fortunate uh, to have been his research assistant, which basically meant I hung out with him in his office for about an hour a week, and he'd dictate his letters to me in French, and I'd write them down in English to send them out, because um, he felt much more comfortable with the French than the English, and I knew French by then, having lived the four years in Paris. Um, while I was living in Paris, I was a poor, starving student, and to uh, support myself, I taught languages, of which Sanskrit and in particular. And I also had um, little notes up in Oriental specialist bookstores in Paris that I would also tutor people in languages or translate uh, text for them. And um, about the time I was admitted to the University of Chicago... I didn't have the money to pay the plane fare, but um, fortuitously, uh, a Frenchman contacted me, and he said he had this book on Indian alchemy, an Indian, alchemy, Indian alchemical text, uh, the Rasarnavam, that he wanted translated from Sanskrit into French. And that would just about pay my plane fare. So um, I did that. It took me a long time. I really did a terrible translation. Um, because it, you can't just sort of jump into a, an esoteric uh, field like that and understand all the language and so forth. But it did pique my curiosity. And uh, when at Chicago a couple of years ago, I was reading with my Hindi professor um, some of the mystic poems of a medieval Indian yogi named Goraknath, I was struck by the similarity of terminology in those poems to what I had read in the Rasarnavam, the Sanskrit text on alchemy. And so that planted an idea in my head, which um, led into the first of three books, of which the Sinister Yogi's book that came out two years ago is the third. Um, I didn't know it at the time that I was going to write three books, but that first book was precisely a comparison between, and eventually a discussion of the historical links between Indian alchemy and 
Hatha Yoga. Uh, and the argument there was that Hatha Yoga borrowed a lot of its concepts and language from alchemy. It was a transference of the alchemical apparatus, closed alchemical apparatus, into the or onto the yogic body, that closed system of Hatha Yoga. But that book, when I completed it, which was entitled uh, The Alchemical Body, came out in 96, it left questions open in my mind, in particular um, about the notion of power substances, because in alchemy you have mercury and sulfur that are the primary reagents. They're identified with the semen of Shiva and the uterine blood of the goddess, and they are also identified, or at least they activate in the body of the alchemist, who's also a yogi, his own semen and the uterine blood of his consort in tantric practice. And it's clear that this there are these homologies between the power substances in the mineral world, the human world, and the divine world that made everything work. But um, I wondered, you know, what... What's the story about these power substances? What makes them powerful? What's the, what's the conceptual underpinnings of that notion of power substances? And that led me to write the next book in the, what turned out to be a trilogy called um, Kiss of the Yogini, Tantric Sex in its South Asian Contexts, where um, I basically unpacked this notion of power substances and how the tantric rituals were first and foremost, or before all else, I think, a matter of um, transacting in these power substances. Um, Male practitioners had to have access to the power fluids of the female yoginis, their uterine flow or their menstrual flow, in order to be uh, initiated and one could say ensanguinated with the shakti, the energy of the goddess uh, that flowed through the wombs of the female yoginis. And uh, the yoginis in turn needed male semen, um, that power substance, because it was the um, fuel that uh, allowed them to fly through the air, which was one thing that they always did. The reason why yogini temples have no roofs, so yoginis can fly into and out of them. That book came out in 03, and that left me other questions, um, in particular why it was that in the tantric text, someone who's initiated, particularly into the supernatural powers, is called a yogi. Because what's the nature of their yoga? It doesn't seem to be hatha yoga. It doesn't seem to be the meditative yoga of the yoga sutras. And um, sinister yogis grew out of that because I found that um, there are descriptions of practitioners of yoga from long before the tantras themselves that flow into the tantric notion of the yogi as someone who is an all-powerful being who is capable of controlling other beings in the world in no small part either by creating them or by entering into those other beings' bodies uh, and controlling them in that way. So this was all the book that we're going to discuss today is the the result of you know some what going back to 1979 so what's that's 32 years or 30 years by the time that book came out in 09 of um, 
kind of backing from one subject into another. Uh, and I did it all backwards, in, in a way. In fact, the, the chronology of the books, that of the alchemical body, is the most recent in the chronology of these um, Indian traditions. The Kiss of the Yogini ends where alchemical body leaves off, and Sinister Yogi ends where Kiss of the Yogini picks up. More or less, there's overlap. So, yeah. Um, I think, yeah, go ahead, uh, Christian. Yeah, thanks. Um, So since this book is somewhat a a challenge to other histories of yoga, maybe you could just briefly tell us uh, how has the history of yoga been approached thus far? Yeah. Right. Um, One thing I try to do in all my books is uh, look at the traditions through the lens of their human agents. Um, So look at Tantra through the lens of practitioners of Tantra, look at yoga through the lens of practitioners of yoga. And of course, the word for that is yogi, or that's what we assume to be the case. Um, And that is the approach that... um, sets my book apart from the mainstream of works on the history of yoga, which tend to be about history of ideas, ideas about yoga, or history of practices, but disembodied, disconnected from the practitioners themselves. So I um, started looking around for references to yogis. Or it's not that I started looking around, it's that I came upon a reference to yogis that was very early. There aren't many before second century BC, and it's hard to date those early sources. And it said that um, a yogis, in the plural, or practitioners of yoga, are capable of entering into the bodies of, and it names a list of creatures, including gods, and walking the earth in all of them, and they can also um, absorb them into themselves like the sun does its ray of lights, uh, uh, its rays of light. So this is a statement saying that the yogi is someone who can either generate or take over other bodies, or then draw their energy back into himself. I had never seen anything like that. That was in the Mahabharata, um, which you know dates from somewhere between 2nd century BC and the 4th century CE. And from the same time period, you have a number of stories, both in the Mahabharata and one in the Maitri Upanishad, of figures called yogis who precisely enter into other bodies, take them over for a time, and then leave them. Uh, that's the sort of the summary of what goes on in those stories. And then in the Buddhist literature from the same time, you have figures not called yogis, but who are doing similar things, more often creating multiple bodies, uh, sort of clones of themselves. And that, too, is a theme that you find in the literature beginning in that period that carries on through the period of the Tantras, talking about, you know, up till the 12th, 13th, 14th centuries, and is continues to be discussed uh, as uh, absolutely, um, uh, in practical terms, pragmatic terms, in uh, works by modern authors, including uh, commentators on the Yoga Sutras. So, my primary, primary difference between what I and other historians of yoga have done is that I, I concentrate on the figure of the yogi, who, uh, growing out of those epic and that Maitri Upanishad myth becomes the stock figure in medieval fantasy and adventure literature as the villain, the evil wizard. Uh, and yogis are seen constantly 
wreaking their havoc, usually by taking over the bodies of kings and then becoming the king of the kingdom whose body they appropriated, appropriated uh, forcing the king into some other body, often of a deer or some other sort of animal or bird. Um, and usually the sinister yogi is hoist by his own petard at the end and, um, and uh, loses his, the body of the king and loses everything in the end. But um, paralleling those stories, and then there's a very rich compendium, compendium of them that carries on down into the 20th century, if not the 21st, you also have how-to accounts of that practice in um, the Hindu tantras. How it is that a yogi can go into another body and either take it over or draw out its energy to make himself more powerful. So, this book, like my others, uh, in particular, The Kiss of the Yogini, is about human agents that practice this thing called yoga. Well, why is it that, as I found, there are no stories about yogis practicing hatha yoga or meditating like the yogis or the practitioners of yoga that you read about in the Yoga Sutra and its um, commentaries? Well, it seems that 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 was not what yogis did. So the question is then, what was yoga? Was yoga something other than Hatha Yoga, other than the yoga of the Yoga Sutras? And the answer has to be, in addition to those forms of yoga, there was this other yoga, this yoga of taking over other bodies or appropriating the energies of other bodies. And as one scratches the surface, one finds, and it's, detailed in matter-of-fact terms in the Yoga Sutras. There's two sutras about this, and in the commentaries, and there's no question in the minds of these orthodox, mainline, mainstream philosophical commentators that this is what yogis do. So it's always been there in the literature that other historians of yoga have looked at. It's just something they overlook because generally what's in those portions of the Yoga Sutra that doesn't deal with Mm, Samkhya philosophy or the Ashtanga yoga, the Eightfold Yogic practice, tends to be overlooked as somewhat superfluous. Well, it was all part of a broad understanding of yoga, and that's why Patanjali included it in his sutras, and um, that's where I found it, in addition to all those other places that I've been talking about. Maybe you could unpack this this term yoga for us, since uh, if we if we look at yoga from the Yoga Sutras, there seems to be a, a different type of understanding of what yoga is uh, compared to what the sources you're using. So, could you unpack that term for us? Sure, um, it's one of the terms with the longest definition in uh, Monier Williams's English Dictionary and the German uh, Saint Petersburg. Uh, Sanskrit to German dictionary. Um, and the, the, the primary sense of the term is to yoke. It's a cognate of the English word yoke. It means to join, to yoke, to unite. Um, however, in the Yoga Sutras, starting from Vyasa himself, the earliest commentator, 5th century, I believe it's Vyasa. If it's not him, it's Vachaspati Mishra in the 9th century. Um, there's an express revision, revision of what yoga means, uh, where it is said yoga is not derived from the root to join, to yoke, but rather from another root, and it refers to Panani, the Sanskrit grammarian, uh, another root, samadhi, or samadha, to um, concentrate. And of course, that's the concentration of 
meditation. So from that commentarial um, convention that goes back almost as far as the Yoga Sutras themselves, um, generally speaking, the focus has been on the meditation as what constitutes quote-unquote classical yoga. Then there's the yoga of postures of hatha yoga, the yoga that hatha means something like violence or force. Um, that's either the practice itself or the result of the practice, a violent transformation of the body of the practitioner. But the word yoga itself, going back to its earliest meaning, <clears throat> the one that you find used in the Vedas and the Upanishads long before the Yoga Sutras, is simply you yoke an animal to, the, the yoke that yokes an animal to a, a uh, conveyance, such as a war chariot or a, or a bullock cart, is called a yoga. And that is the sense that one finds in the um, Veda, um, where the yoke is what particularly links the warrior's chariot to the to the um, the horses that are pulling that chariot. That is the sense of the term that one finds as well in narratives in the Mahabharata. I've talked about narratives in the Mahabharata, the earliest narratives that speak of yogis taking over other people's bodies. But there's also another group of narratives in the Mahabharata, again, 4th century, 2nd century BC to 4th century CE, give or take, in which a warrior, when he is about to die on the battlefield, uh, yokes himself to yoga. That's the term that's used, yoga yukta. He becomes yoked to yoga. And then he um, rises up to the heavens in a burst of light. And this word yoga has been left untranslated uh, by um, translators of the epic. But I'm convinced that the term yoga here is a reference to a chariot. They're yoked to a chariot. And this is a, an account of the apotheosis, the uh, rise to heaven in a bodily form of a dying warrior. So this was a kshatriya, a warrior um, account of the glorious death uh, on the battlefield of a valiant warrior. And this was the reward was that he would be raised bodily to heaven on a chariot. So he was yoked to that chariot, Yoga Yukta. And his stories tell us what um, analytical accounts of apotheosis also tell us. And that is that the chariot that the yogi, uh, sorry, that the warrior is seated upon pierces the sun and takes him to the world of the immortal gods. So very much like Hercules in Greek mythology and other heroes in um, Scandinavian and other uh, mythological traditions, the hero's rise is a bodily one. It takes place on a chariot that manifests or is sent down from heaven, and that's called a yoga. And that, too, is becomes incorporated into epic and tantric accounts of Yoga, But the term has so many other meanings, uh, such as astronomical conjunction, a device, a strategy, a recipe. I mean, the list goes on and on. So when you see the word yoga in a text, you've got to know which yoga is being discussed. And again, people tend to read the meditative or the hatha yoga tradition onto whatever instances of the word yoga that they see in texts of various sorts. And that's often uh, misleading, and they shouldn't be doing that. 
Or, um, you, you, you basically along lines, yogis, um, when they're defined as such, um, is they're defined by the, the undertaking or taking over of a, of a, of another body. Um, could you explore this, this notion of, uh, possession and multiple selves and some of the things that these yogis did? Sure. Um, the principle is that like the sun, which is the motor of life and death in traditional Indian thought, its rays pour out uh, life and light and also actually rainwater, and they also draw it back in. That's evaporation, but it's also at the end of life, one's soul is drawn up via solar rays back into the sun. But the human body itself, every human body is like a little sun. It's, it's radiating rays out from it. Uh, that's, those are the rays of perception. Um, like the ancient Greeks, the Indians conceived of perception, let's use visual perception, it's the best example, as a ray of light going out from the surface of the eye to the object being viewed. So perception doesn't occur on the surface of the retina or on the optic nerve or the brain behind it, but rather on the surface of the object being viewed. So the act of perception is one of two of those little rays going out from one's eyes from the body to another point. If one is a yogi, one has increased one's power, the power of those rays that one generates, in the same way that the sun itself is more powerful, uh, a generator of rays than any individual person or god. Yogis can generate rays that not only conform to the surface of the object that they're viewing, but can actually penetrate that surface. And this is given in um, the standard accounts of perception are often supplemented by an account of yogi perception. There are four, in most philosophical systems, four um, foundations for valid cognitions. That is to say, how do we know what we know because of perception, inference, uh, the authority of the Vedas or of some holy man, and yogi perception. And yogi perception is this kind of trump card because yogis, like the ancient rishis who perceived the Vedas and transmitted them, uh, can see into things and through their surfaces. They can also see into the past and the future, distant times, but also distant places, but also what's normally invisible. So they can look inside of themselves and see their souls, which normal people cannot do, and they can look inside of other people and see their souls. Well, if you're seeing someone's soul inside their body because your rays of perception are penetrating the body, what's to stop you from then following those rays and working your way inside that body and doing what you will with it? That is the foundation of tantric initiation. The guru enters the body of the disciple through the rays that he emanates either from his eyes or his heart into the eyes or heart of the disciple. And he transforms the psychosomatic makeup of the disciple in that way. And so the process of initiation is one in which, in fact, the guru um, prepares or actually liberates the disciple for all time uh, in that moment of initiation. And then the guru withdraws back into his own body, but he's 
fundamentally transformed his disciple. Well, this is the principle in its most positive aspect, but when it's a tantric practitioner doing a hostile takeover, that is to say, entering the body of someone who didn't ask to be penetrated, either for purposes of initiation or something else, well, then they can, what they do is generally uh, of a, d- a darker nature because they're, they're, they're using that other person's body in ways I've already started to talk about, like when they take over a king's body to become a king. Um, so that's kind of the principle behind um, this power to take over other bodies that is so widely accepted in all the philosophical schools, at least to penetrate other bodies through that power of yogi perception. You also talk about yoga in relation to uh, in, in, in relation to death. Can you uh, kind of discuss that a little bit? Well, on the one hand, there's the, the warrior's death on the battlefield, and the chariot that carries his body up to heaven is, is, is called a yoga. Um, then uh, the that theme alongside the theme of the yogi who's capable of penetrating other bodies, is used um, as a means for explaining, for example, how venerable gurus like Goraknath, whom I talked about right at the beginning of this um, interview, can go on living from one century or even one millennium to another, and that is when he sees that his body is aging and perhaps dying, he can enter into another body, either living or dead, and enliven it. And uh, so you have a number of accounts where some young person in their prime of life has died suddenly, and the body's on the pyre about to be burned, but then a yogi enters into it, leaves his own old body behind, and the young body that had died suddenly opens its eyes and acts as though it's just waking from a deep sleep. And um, then the old yogi is living through the younger body. And that's how Goraknath goes on living from one age to another. Um, There are all sorts of variations on that theme. In addition, there's a practice, it's not termed yoga, it's called Utkranti, which is the same term that's used for the rising of that chariot called a yoga in the warrior apotheosis Um, and that's often translated as yogic suicide where a yogi will provoke his own death uh, by basically blasting himself out of his cranial vault uh, into the uh, highest region so it's it's a the yogi shoots himself up into heaven doesn't need a chariot he just uh, blows his head off basically and it's interesting that uh, in the accounts of uh, the death of Sati in Hindu mythology, uh, Shiva's faithful wife, we often, some of the versions of those accounts show her throwing herself on her, um, on a funeral, on, on a sacrificial fire and burning herself to death. But uh, many accounts portray her as, as blasting her own head off in the same way that um, uh, yogis do in the Udkranti, that yogic suicide. Uh, is that where you were looking uh, headed there, Christian? Or yeah, you... that's what I was referring to. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, toward, towards the end of the book, you also um, discuss the relationship between uh, gods um, kind of being discussed in terms of yogic powers and then kind of the alternative of, of yogis being deified. 
Um, could you discuss this? Yeah, sure. Um, yeah, uh, prime examples being um, the body of Krishna when he reveals his universal form to Arjuna in the Bhagavad Gita, at the end of the Bhagavad Gita, and also the Buddha in uh, many uh, Buddhist myths of the Buddha manifesting in a sort of universal form. And in both of those, particularly the, this case of Krishna, he's explicitly being called a yogi and demonstrating his powers of yoga when he reveals himself to Arjuna. Um, and when he does so, one sees him containing all the bodies of the gods and all the creatures in the world inside of his body, just like a yogi who's capable of absorbing them. But he's also spitting out bodies and drinking in bodies. So he's, he is this universal yogi that um, is behaving like a human yogi, but he's doing it on a cosmic level. Uh, so too with Vishnu, uh, of whom Krishna is in later tradition considered to be an avatara, an incarnation. When Vishnu uh, is called a Mahayogi, a great yogi, uh, this is the time when he goes into his yogic trance and he absorbs all the creatures of the universe into his body. And then when he awakens from his yogic sleep, he re-injects them into a new universe uh, of his own making. So very much the modus operandi of a human yogi, but on a cosmic scale. In the Buddhist mythology, the, the Buddha has a nirmanakaya, a constructed body, and one can see that Buddhists playing with the same sorts of, uh, of themes uh, in their mythology. Also in Krishnaite mythology in the Bhagavata Purana, when the famous uh, Ras Lila, when Krishna dances with all the cowherding gopi girls and plays the music that they all dance to at the same time. He multiplies himself into clones of himself, and there as well, he's explicitly called the great yogi at that very moment. So there's no question that these divine figures, Krishna, Vishnu, the Buddha, are acting like yogis. So the, then the other question is, did the yoga paradigm of yogis come from a divine prototype or is it the other way around was the prototype that of the concept of yogi perception and yogic penetration and creation of other bodies that was then adapted into the mythology of the gods and i tend to think that the it went in that direction that is to say that the textual sources talk earlier about human yogis than they do about divine yogis. And in the Bhagavad Gita itself, or I should say in the Mahabharata book in which the Bhagavad Gita is embedded, not in the Gita itself, but a few chapters uh, outside of the Gita, there is a statement to the effect that some people will think that Krishna is just a yogi because of what he's doing, but he's really God, which gives the impression that the, 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 the foundation for the practice was that of conceived of as concerning humans rather than gods. So, to, to get to the other half of your question, um, yogis deify themselves, become godlike, when they can create or absorb or clone themselves into multiple beings. Um, but perhaps the, the actual history of ideas had the yogis doing it before the gods were doing it. But once the gods start doing it, the referent becomes the divine being, because, of course, in, 
Hindu mythology, we do what the gods did in the beginning. I hope that's clear enough. Yeah. Thank you. Mm-hmm. Um, let's get back to some of these sinister yogis because um, in the in the first and the last chapter, this is uh, kind of through some storytelling. This is your your main focus. Um, in the in the last chapter of the book, you talk about a lot of uh, foreign accounts of, of these yogis. Um, maybe you could discuss uh, these these different perspectives, either from uh, the European perspective, and you also use uh, Muslim accounts and Chinese accounts. How how are these different uh, groups kind of portraying or dis- discussing yogis? Mm-hmm. Um, well, to begin, none of them would. would, would without a single exception, really, ever portrays yogis, the people they call yogis, or jogis, because that's the vernacular form of the Sanskrit yogi, um, and that would have been the term uh, in common parlance uh, we're talking about between the about the 12th and the 20th centuries. Um, they're never portrayed as meditating, sitting cross-legged, um, as mystics, as even practitioners of hatha yoga, of, of the sorts of, you know, um, postures and breathing techniques that uh, we assume to be the, the sine qua non of yoga and the practice of yogis. No, instead they are, for the most part, they're wonder workers. They can perform miracles, um, make shoes fly through the air, uh, things of that sort, commiserate with invisible beings. But more than anything else, they're just... Um, roustabouts, uh, particularly the European accounts of them, they are these, and really it's, it it no doubt was the case until uh, partway through the colonial period that the yogis were uh, these bands of irregular soldiers uh, or traders, but in any case they were highly mobile, and um, they didn't take over other people's bodies so much as just take over marketplaces when they descended upon them and raise so much of a ruckus that they had to be paid to go away. Um, and very often um, they were mercenaries. Uh, and this was a fact, particularly of 18th and into the 19th century, military labor market was composed of irregular soldiers who were called and often called themselves and often dressed in the garb of yogis, meaning uh, basically naked but for a loincloth, smeared with ashes, dreadlocks, and um, carrying uh, weapons of one sort or another, including these discuses that are right out of James Bond that had sharp edges that they could throw and uh, lop off the head of someone at some distance with. Uh, They also carried um, deer uh, horns made of deer antlers that they'd blow in to announce their presence and usually uh, raise um, fear in the hearts of those who heard them all blowing at once. Um, they, they, uh, they were a very colorful fixture on the South Asian landscape for several hundred years, and they were, they were pretty dire. Most people that came across them usually ran the other way if they could. Um, there aren't many sympathetic accounts of them. The Muslims tend to be, that is to say, the Mughals, um, who were the rulers of India, tend to have a more measured understanding of them because they um, they were dealing with them in, a, in an administrative way, whereas the British, uh, the Europeans were um, traders uh, and com- commercial, uh, you know, 
travelers and and um, uh, merchants who were trying to uh, uh, undertake uh, various commercial transactions with the uh, Indian trading classes, and it was those classes that the yogis tend to prey upon the most uh, when they come and take over a marketplace or uh, or a, a, a camel train, a caravanserai. So um, very colorful figures, um, very dire. Um, and very militant and military. They also controlled trade. They 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 were um, they had trading corporations that used pilgrimage routes and their own inviolability inviolability uh, because they were holy men as means to uh, control a lot of overland trade in South Asia. And the British East India Company saw them as uh, their principal rivals, and they they had to uh, outwit them and out-legislate them, and eventually they did. But for a long time, it was um, pretty much a toss-up. And you could see the British being outmaneuvered by yogis in certain parts of India. So very colorful and interesting story um, that these uh, foreigners paint of the yogis. And I, I could still, you know, see uh, traces of that even in my fieldwork in India um, when I'd interview the yogis in their monasteries or the ones who were wandering around. They still had a lot of that mischievous side to them, but they no longer had the, uh, the military might and uh, political or, or economic clout that they certainly had uh, in earlier centuries. You also say uh, that eventually there's a decline in, in the stress or the importance of these yogic powers um, in favor for, for theism. Um, why, why did this happen? Can you explain what was going on there? Well, I'll, I'll, I'll sort of fall back on William Pinch's uh, writing, which is very good on this subject. He wrote a book called uh, Peasants and Monks in British India and another book called Warrior Ascetics. And um, the, the storyline is that as the East India Company and the British Crown later um, grew in power in India, um, one of their agendas was very much to uh, rid the Indian landscape of these... Um, uncontrolled and uncontrollable yogis. And in the same period, you have the really the meteoric rise of Hindu devotion, bhakti, in um, North India in particular, um, from the 16th century forward. And the religious orders, monastic orders and so forth, that were um, embraced bhakti over and against the, the more yogic, form of practice um, they were theirs was a more quietistic meditative um, world embracing and people embracing sort of practice and the British supported that sort of religious um, ascetic religious order uh, even as they um, worked to undermine and, and, and basically uh, redefine yogis as a criminal and vagrants so that they could legislate them out of existence or imprison them or just get rid of them. So the way that Pinch describes it is the the East India Company and the British needed a new kind of ascetic, one that was going to uh, sit under a tree in the village and uh, teach villagers, evangelize them uh, in the ways of uh, bhakti and quietistic devotion and... um, supplant the other sorts of yogis that had theretofore been uh, living in or passing through those villages, uh, who on their part were these, you know, wonder workers who could either curse or 
or bless the villages that they came through. So it was very much um, British uh, strategy that uh, brought about this change. And, you know, over the hundreds, 100, 200 years that have followed, that has become the paradigmatic view of the yogi, with a great deal of help from um, figures like Vivekananda and uh, other Indian uh, reformers um, from the turn of the 19th century, the turn of the 20th century, who've uh, promoted that vision of the, the, the yogi or the, the uh, ascetic, the renouncer as a, a holy man of a much sweeter sort than the sinister yogis that uh, I focus on in my book. Um, how do you think your, your book, uh, I mean, obviously it's challenging kind of the Western contemporary notion of what yoga is. And, uh, do you, do you think it, it has implications for this kind of yoga industry that we, that we find in the West? I hope so. Um, there, I can only, I only have sort of anecdotal, well, I'm not quite sure where your question is coming from. It, have, have, have people who are uh, in, implicated in the yoga industry, either as gurus or as um, disciples, um, read my book and reacted to it? Yes, to some extent. I have anecdotal uh, uh, evidence for that. They send me emails. Uh, I get you know, blurbs here and there and Yoga International, for example, recently. Uh, and I exchange emails with people like John Friend. So that is happening. There is notice of, of, of my work. Um, don't know that it's going to be embraced because it does fly in the face of a lot of the uh, uh, assumptions that ground the big yoga, the modern yoga subculture. Um, I, I have since been working on two other projects that in a way have somewhat modified my own view. Sinister Yogis, I'm pretty much fly in the face of received notions of yoga, meaning basically what the, the yoga subculture assumes to be true about yoga being based in the yoga sutras of Patanjali, being a combination of meditation and physical practice and so forth. Um, those projects have been a, a book that I've edited called Yoga in Practice. It's in the same series as the Princeton uh, Tantra in Practice that I edited uh, 11 years ago, and that will come out next month. Um, and I wrote the intro to that, and in the process of doing that, I had to rethink and reread and learn a lot that I didn't know about the more recent history of yoga and look more closely at the Yoga Sutra. Uh, and then another project that I'm getting close to completing uh, is, in fact, a reception history of the Yoga Sutra, uh, potentially. That will also be a Princeton book. Um, in a series that's been initiated there called um, Biographies of the World's Great Books. Um, and um, so that's really pushed me deep into a study of the Yoga Sutra and its um, 16, 1700 years of history. And I realized that the, it's not so much either or because much of what I talk about is in the Yoga Sutra. And many of the Yoga Sutra commentators, at least down to the 19th century, uh, understood that. So I think that there's room for dialogue and that that dialogue is already taking place. Um, and I, 
some of the things that I'll say in the uh, reception history of yoga book uh, will shock some of the quote-unquote yoga fundamentalists uh, concerning the, their own gurus and, and, and their this uh, hagiographies, the, the authorized biographies of them, because uh, it may not be quite the way their histories have portrayed them. Speaking here of figures like Vivekananda, but also some of the more recent uh, gurus. Um, so yeah, I'm kind of waiting to see how, how that all plays itself out. That book probably won't come out. That is to say that Reception History of the Yoga Sutras book probably won't come out until early 2013. And then uh, kind of just looking at the book, maybe from a, a step back, um, as, as your your role kind of as a, uh, a mentor, you know, you're a professor at a very prominent uh, graduate program in religious studies. Um, this, this kind of methodological shift that you've taken from uh, focusing on um, – looking at the the history of this from kind of a practitioner perspective versus kind of a history of ideas perspective. Um, how, how do you see that really enhances your work and maybe could enhance the, the study of religion more generally? Huh. Does that make sense? Sure. It does. I, uh, what, what always strikes me is how it seems so obvious to me that this is a much, it's just intrinsically much more interesting to bring living people into the picture as opposed to, you know, focusing on the, the abstract. The, I, I often make the, uh, use the metaphor of, you know, philosophy is the bare bones of practice, but you want to know about the, the flesh and the blood in, on those bones and the, the blood that's rushing through those blood vessels and the, the various organs of the bodies that those bones support, like um, the eyes and the ears, but also the uh, penises and the vulvas. And that is such a it so enriches the um, the uh, the detective work because that's how I see it of, uh, of uh, unearthing excavating these traditions when they're old uh, past traditions but also it, it makes the work of understanding religion on the ground a lot easier I think when you deal in the concrete um, and that is um, I don't just teach about tantra and yoga in my particularly my graduate seminars, I also teach about uh, the history of Hindu polytheism and how very much the practices in village India today are evolved straight out of the Vedas, but not the Rig Veda, more the Atarva Veda, the Veda com- uh, devoted to uh, spells and uh, charms and uh, exorcisms and possession and so forth. And you can just draw connect the dots between that and early Hindu medical tradition, Ayurveda, uh, Tantra, and then what people are doing uh, every day in village and in some cases urban India. It's the occulted history of Indian uh, polytheism uh, without the bhakti, which is not to say bhakti is not important, but I think it's a superstructure built upon an infrastructure that is, again, much more concerned with life living bodies in the world, a world comprised of trees and rocks and lakes and streams and forests and buildings. Uh, This is, I mean, I guess in that respect, it's a phenomenological, phenomenology of religion approach, 
perhaps I'm still drawing on some of what I learned from Eliade, uh, that um, people's religions involve their minds and their bodies, and their bodies live in worlds that have things like trees and mountains and sun and moon, and all of that has to be taken into account to give a full, to generate a full understanding of how homo religiosus, or religious uh, man, uh, functions in South Asia. Um, so, yeah, for me, it's just, it's so obvious, um, and so much more interesting, I think, than to take a history of ideas approach, which is not to say that there aren't many fine scholars in programs around the country and the world, many of whom I went to graduate school with who aren't doing that to some extent, but I really I feel very strongly about that. I also feel strongly about um, not being um, hemmed in by the political borders of modern India when we talk about uh, these Indic traditions, not only Hinduism, but all of them. Because um, Hinduism has lived in places like Southeast Asia and Inner uh, Asia, and um, there have been exchanges and contacts with the Western world, uh, East Asia, um, Southeast Asia, going back for millennia. And uh, that also enriches one's understanding of these traditions. They're not monolithic, and they're not limited to text, and they're not limited to the geographical borders of modern India. That often flies in the face of what Hindu nationalists and fundamentalists would like us to believe, by the way. Yeah, I think you did a great job with that uh, in Sinister Yogis. Uh, Before I let you go, um, do you have any other projects um, after the autobiography of the the Yoga Sutras that you are are thinking about? Yeah, well, actually, the the, the last uh, remarks I made are where I see myself headed. The first book I wrote, it was my under, my PhD thesis was called Myths of the Dog Man, and it was a comparative mythology of uh, dog-headed races that uh, treated uh, India as well as China and um, the European Mediterranean world, including Egypt. And I'm going to go back to that, I think. Uh, there, there's the rich demonological tradition, uh, for lack of a better word, in South Asia that uh, clearly has interacted with much of Europe and Asia over the centuries, if not the millennia. Some of it at an Indo-European level, going back thousands of years, but much of it the result of contacts and exchanges along the Silk Road and the various uh, maritime routes uh, going back to the 3rd century BC, but until much more recent times. And it, it again, it's, uh, it's a really exciting sort of detective work that I love to do. And I expect I'll be doing more of that. Also, I went for the first time to uh, Angkor Wat last year, and that's just such an amazingly rich uh, archaeological site and the heart of an entire empire that was Hindu for several hundred years, from about the 8th to the um, 15th centuries. And uh, I want to do more research there as well. So I guess what I'm saying is I'm I'm decentering my research uh, out of the Indian subcontinent per se, but not abandoning it for that, for all that. That sounds great. great. Uh, Well, thank you again uh, for, for talking with us. Uh, The book was thoroughly enjoyable and I highly recommend it. Um, So thank you again, David. Thank you, Christian. It was my pleasure. Many thanks to professor David Gordon White for speaking with us about his new book, Sinister Yogis.